Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Robbie Cape from 98.6. Robbie, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. You bet. You bet. So here's the game plan. Uh, what we seek to do here on this show is challenge status quo purchasing methods and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower their healthcare costs or improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Absolutely. All right. So uh, to get us started here, Robbie, I'm just going to read a bio about you. So our, our, our audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll get into it. Great. So Robbie Cape passionately believes everyone deserves excellent, affordable primary care. And with that in mind, he co-founded 98.6 in 2015 to harness the power of technology to improve both access and the quality of care. Robbie's 25-year career has centered around building consumer technology businesses and products, including founding Cozy Incorporated, where he served as CEO from its inception until it was acquired by Time Incorporated in 2014. Under Robbie's leadership, Cozy became the number one brand in the family technology category with more than 14 million family members in 150 countries. He spent the first 12 years of his career at Microsoft, where he led projects that included Microsoft Money, a program he ushered to profitability. Robbie holds a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from Princeton University, and he lives on Mercer Island with his wife, three children, and their poodle, Gingy. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. All right. All right. Well, I'm an animal lover, too. Dogs are always a welcome addition to the family. Yeah, I agree. Robbie, you know, you really have a primary background in tech based on, on your bio there. So what prompted you to jump into the healthcare space and launch 98.6? Michael, if, if you look back at my experience, there has been this, this thread that's drawn through. It hasn't been uh, there for 100% of my professional years, but it's certainly been there for the vast majority. For six years at Microsoft, I was working on Microsoft Money, mm-hmm. uh, and, and our, our mission on Microsoft Money was to help families achieve a higher level of financial health uh, within their family. And certainly during my nine years at, at Cozy, um, we were very focused on helping families have better relationships with each other uh, by virtue of helping them uh, with family logistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then at 90.6, we're, we're setting out to, to help individuals be, be healthier and have more and deeper access to, to primary care. So the theme, you know, is, is sort of a continual dial-up in the impact that I personally want to try to have on the world through my professional endeavors, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the social impact that, that I want to have. And certainly, you know, coming out of Cozy, I was searching for, you know, the, the area that I felt was the greatest social problem uh, that we face here in the United States. My attention certainly went direct to, to, to primary care and, and healthcare in, in general. And that's what, what brought me into the space. When I think of entrepreneurs, there's, there's two types, you know, there's, there's entrepreneurs who are focused on, you know, solving a problem and generating income. And then there's impact entrepreneurs where, you know, making an impact is the primary goal. And, and certainly, uh, you know, money becomes a byproduct of, of the amount of impact. So that puts you in the bucket of impact entrepreneur, which is uh, always one of my favorites. 
Let's talk about primary care. You know, before we, we, we jump into 98.6, let's just take a step back. I mean, what's the state of primary care in our country? And, and do you think we have a problem? To say that we have a problem is an understatement. I believe and we believe at 98.6 that we are literally in crisis. And the the crisis is is all related to, you know, what we see as a disconnect between the supply curve and the intended or desired demand curve for primary care. And so, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk about that for, for a couple yes. of minutes. let's do it. On the supply side, it's very clear. The numbers don't lie. We're going to see a shortage by the year 2020 of 20,000 primary care physicians. Wow. And that number is going to rise to 30,000 by the year 2025. If you talk to five primary care physicians, you know, you'll very quickly discover why that shortage is in place. It's because being a primary care physician in the United States is just no fun anymore. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's largely a sort of an emotionally debilitating job and energy debilitating job. So there's this phenomenal shortage of primary care physicians. And yet when you look at the demand side, you see an equally dire situation. On the demand side, or the intentional, if we think about the demand that should be there, it's super clear. You introduce a single primary care physician into a population of 10,000 people, and you reduce the mortality rate of that population by north of 5%. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but if a single individual has a relationship with primary care, with real primary care, and I'm sure we'll talk more about what we mean by that. Yes. A relationship with primary care by a single individual will lead for that single individual to a 19% lower likelihood of premature death for that individual. (laughs) That's crazy. And it'll lead to a savings of 33% on that individual's healthcare costs over the course of their lifetime. Okay, so when we look at saving lives and we look at saving money, one of the greatest levers that we have as a nation is in primary care, is in building relationships between individuals and primary care. And yet what we see in the nation, when we look at a bunch of the sort of quote unquote innovations that have been happening over the past 10, 20, even 30 years in primary care, we actually see the industry taking us in exactly the wrong direction. In other words, when when you look at the evolution of primary care, primary care is becoming more transactional. Fewer and fewer individuals have relationships with primary care. Fewer and fewer individuals actually indicate that they have a primary care physician. So all of the indicators here are headed in the wrong direction. The innovations, things like traditional old-fashioned telemedicine, things like Google, things like the retail clinic, the urgent care facility, all of these quote-unquote innovations are unfortunately taking us in the wrong direction because they're essentially enabling individuals to quote-unquote get by without a relationship with primary care. So that's the crisis that we see, and that's certainly what we're trying to take a a, a very, very hard look at uh, at 98.6. 
That's interesting. And, and, and that's a, I think it's a great perspective. One that I, I don't think has been presented at least to me before, as, as far as, uh, you know, the innovations going in the wrong direction, you talk about the importance of a, of a relationship, which I agree with, but does the current state of, of primary care prohibit or, you know, really serve as a barrier to establishing some of those relationships. Because if you look at the, the average patient panel for a, a typical primary care physician, does it even allow for them to really build those relationships? No, it, it absolutely does not. And it's not just their patient panel. It's everything that is behind that patient panel. It's the, the success metrics of the health system that they're a part of. It's how they are compensated. It's how the entire remuneration system of the primary of, of the healthcare industry, which is a fee for service model is is based. So all of that, I mean, the, the underpinnings of that part of the business make it exceptionally, exceptionally challenging, if not impossible to develop a relationship in the context of the current primary care model. And let me just break that down into just simple terms. We don't pay them enough. Is that, I mean, is that what you're saying? I mean, the reason they have patient panels that they do is because we don't pay them enough and they have to have that size panel to be able to make ends meet as a business. I'm not sure that we don't pay them enough. I'm not sure that I would, I would come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. If you look at the compensation of a primary care physician, uh, I'm not, I, again, I'm not, I, I, I don't know that we pay them too little or too much or just the the right amount. The only thing I can say is that generally speaking, more of those primary care physicians are unhappy in their job than there are physicians in that industry who are happy in their job. I know that for a fact. I don't believe that the primary reason why the majority of primary care physicians are unhappy is because of their compensation. The underlying issue is around how we are paying them. I think it's all connected. It's how we're paying them. It's ultimately how many people they have to see that ultimately becomes, as you said, you know, the barrier to that relationship. So the one last question I I would ask before we kind of jump into your company is, that current model that we're talking about where there's physicians that are considering leaving, do you think that actually affects the quality of care that can be delivered to a patient as well? I actually think that the quality of care is largely the cause for the primary care physicians being so unhappy in their job. And, and certainly it's not all of them. What we've seen, and again, we don't have deep, deep, deep research on this, but we know that there is deep research on this. What we've seen is that physicians ultimately are not happy with the quality of care that they are being called upon to deliver, given the systems that they are in, you know, and the state of of the industry around them. At the end of the day, the physicians who we talk to gain an enormous amount of energy from diagnosing and treating patients. And the moment they recognize that they are unable to do a really good job diagnosing and treating patients either, and there's any number of reasons why they're unable to to achieve that. It might be because they don't have enough time to dedicate to that patient. 
It might be because of some of the other demands of their time. Mm -hmm. It might be because of the number of people who are in the room when they need to be conducting that medical interview with that patient that prevents them from getting really good information. I mean, there's any number of factors that could lead a physician to the conclusion or to, to the emotional state where they feel like they are no longer practicing their skill at the highest possible level, that their morale in that position ends up going down and they, you know, are no longer happy going to work every day. There's really two problems that we have here. The supply side as well. If that's the current state, there's probably not a lot of medical students who are super excited to go into primary care. That's exactly right. Right. All right. So, I think that's been some good some good context for us. So let's let's jump into 98.6. So your company is a virtual primary care service. So explain to our audience what virtual primary care is and specifically what problems you're attempting to solve with it. Well, at the core, 98.6 is attempting to solve this primary care crisis that we've been talking about for the last 10 to 15 minutes. We are setting out to ensure that every human on this earth has access to basic primary care without ever needing to make a financial trade-off to get it. When we look at primary care, we're talking about so the, the, the virtual primary care that we're delivering, very different from the primary care that is so often being practiced today. We are attempting to go back and basically deliver the old-fashioned type of primary care, the type of primary care that was practiced 30, 40, 50 years ago, where the relationship that an individual or a family had with their primary care uh, physician was one of the two or three most important relationships in their lives. We want, and it's going to take us time to do this, uh, where we've only just begun, we want our patients to develop that sort of relationship with 98.6. We want to be there for them, obviously, when they're sick, but also when they're healthy. We want to be there for any medical question or issue or concern or stress that they might have, no matter how small, no matter how complicated it is, no matter how simple it is, small, big, no no matter what, we want to be there for the patient. Um, And we also want them to know that they can access us no matter where they are. So just like that primary care physician 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, you know, if we go talk to our parents was absolutely accessible in all aspects of life. We want 98.6 to be virtually accessible through every modality uh, that individuals live in. So, you know, they could be lying in bed, they could be standing in line at a grocery store, they can be sitting in a meeting, uh, they can be sitting on the bus. Obviously, life these days is very different than life was, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Sure. So we're delivering on-demand, old-fashioned primary care through a mobile application that you access via private, secure texting, uh, primarily, so via a text-based approach. Uh, And it is that text-based approach that enables us to make that service available across all the modalities of someone's life. And and the the business model or the, the pricing model 
of the service is also very similar to, to, to sort of old fashioned in that it should never cost you anything to access primary care. You know, part of building a relationship is that whenever you think that you have a question or have a concern, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, that you can just pick up your phone and you know that the service is right there and no one's going to charge you, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, or $150 to sort of get a simple question answered. The marginal cost of using 98.6 needs to always be as close to zero as possible. It's zero in almost all cases due to some rules that the IRS has put in place. Fortunately, we have to charge high deductible health plans. So people on HSAs uh, have to pay $5 every time they they use 98.6. But ultimately, our vision is that it's free to use with your subscription. And, and by virtue of making primary care available, you know, accessible, incredibly high quality, and at a marginal cost of zero, you know, our hope is to develop that very tight relationship with our patients. So virtual primary care and what you guys are delivering is essentially telemedicine. Now, there are a ton of telemedicine vendors and companies in the market, companies like Teladoc, Amwell, Doctor on Demand. So explain to our audience, what's the difference between virtual primary care and one of these standalone telemedicine vendors? Traditional old-fashioned telemedicine, and you've mentioned a few of the companies that are engaged in traditional old-fashioned telemedicine, you know, is is really more of the same sort of transactionalization of primary care that we've seen over the course of the last several years. Ultimately, all of these services I would I would characterize as sickness services. They are services that you turn to when you're sick. They are not meant to be a relationship. Uh, they are not meant to be there for you, both in sickness and in health. Uh, we certainly acknowledge at 98.6 that in in many cases, the first time someone is exposed to 98.6 is going to be uh, when they are sick because uh, being sick is an incredible call to action to try something new. We are going to be working hard to be there for our patients, not only when they're sick, but ultimately when they are healthy as well. So that includes you know, doing an exceptional job with follow-up. It means doing an exceptional job with with sort of this continuity of care so that your medical record and your history is always part of the experience that you have with 98.6. In time, we'll be reaching out to patients when they are certainly healthy uh, to get them more engaged uh, in their healthcare. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can engage people in, in, in their healthcare, but that, that concept of being there for people both in sickness and in health and having that relationship have a sense of continuity to it is a major, major differentiator. There's, there's several other dimensions of differentiation that, that we look at and we think are critical. Number one is quality. Yep. So quality of care for us is the most critical uh, element of our service. We could deliver the most accessible care at the most ridiculously low cost. And if it wasn't at the highest level of quality that it could be, in other words, at or above the standard of care that has been established in an ambulatory setting, 
then it wouldn't be acceptable to us. It has to be at the highest level of quality. And the way we achieve quality is through a couple of different mechanisms. First of all, it's in how we we hire our, our physicians. So all of our physicians, um, in other words, everyone uh, at 98.6 who is taking care of patients is a board certified physician, and they are all hired as permanent employees of the company. We hire all of our physicians uh, full-time. Uh, we pay them salaries, just like every other member of the company. We put them through the exact same interview process with the exact same selection criteria as every other person at the company, including our marketers and our software engineers and our finance people. I mean, literally everyone. They are bona fide members of the 98.6 team uh, in all respects. To, to give you a sense of just how selective we sure. are, sure. Uh, we extend offers to one out of every 20 physicians who we evaluate. And our acceptance rate, once we actually do decide to make one of those offers in 20, uh, is over 80%. So we're incredibly selective in, in the physicians we bring on board, and they ultimately have a deep vested interest uh, along with all the other employees at 90.6 in our success in delivering on our, our mission as a company. So that's, that's the first component of, of quality. Uh, the, the second component of quality is the quality assurance that we build into our, our practice. Mm -hmm. So to, to kind of put some, some real numbers on that, during a physician's first three months treating 98.6 patients, we review 100% of their cases. After six months, we reduce that review rate to 50%. And we are building technology today that is going to enable us to move that percentage back up to 100% on an ongoing basis. So we will be reviewing, um, in the fullness of time, we will review 100% of the cases that come through our, our clinic and, and are building technology to enable us to, to do so. Not only that, but we, we provide our, our physicians, and this is largely built by the physicians, a set of standards that we believe are best of breed in the industry, whether that be our antibiotic stewardship program, where we are just incredibly careful about the antibiotics that we prescribe. And certainly if you look at our mm -hmm. prescription rates, they are some of the lowest across the entire industry. We will never prescribe opioids in our virtual clinics. So that's actually a relatively easy one. We just won't yes. do it. But with antibiotics, you know, and with prescriptions in general, I think you you look, if, if you look at prescription rates for a given provider or provider group, you can learn a lot about the quality of medicine that those physicians are practicing. So quality is an, a, a critical element associated with our differentiation from the traditional old-fashioned telemedicine providers. Lastly, it's access. You know, yeah. our, our experience, you know, by virtue of us being available, first of all, being completely on demand, in other words, being there for you right when you need us, and being available via this text-based experience, it enables people to access us from absolutely anywhere. 
And, and we believe that level of accessibility that ultimately the most important element of quality of care is care that is delivered early and often. And by virtue of our accessibility, we are able to deliver care early and often because we're right there with you no matter where you are and no matter how you are. One of the biggest differentiators for me as a, as a consumer, I mean, I've used telemedicine um, and, and I met, as I mentioned to you previously, you know, I also you know, use a virtual primary care uh, service as well. The difference to me is that they're full-time employees and, and telemedicine now feels more like Uber for, or Lyft for physicians, right? You know, they're, they're moonlighting and not, you know, doing, doing something on the side, which might solve a problem that a, a consumer or a patient might have, you know, at a one-time basis. But to your point earlier, the, that the relationship is missing and it can't really happen or, or be nurtured or flourish in the current, you know, telemedicine model. That's correct. Absolutely. Another thing that, that I understand in talking with some members from your team is that you guys are trying to use technology to drive efficiency. You know, specifically you're, you're using AI or artificial intelligence to help with some of the intake and the, the follow-up, which kind of supports that relationship building. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about that and, and, and explain what, if any, any efficiencies that produces, you know, relative to traditional model? Yes. Uh, so uh, the, the technology that we're building um, helps us across each of these value elements. It, it helps us in the quality of service that we're delivering. It certainly helps us in the accessibility. And lastly, the fact that we are building technology that augments our physicians, in other words, enables them practice to a scale that is order of magnitudes, uh, orders of magnitude larger than what they could do in an ambulatory setting is what enables us to deliver the service at a ridiculously low cost. So yes, the, our, our technology is core to the value propositions that we're, we're putting out there. There's a wide range of opportunities to enable a physician to be more efficient. At the end of the day, what we're setting out to do is to enable our physicians to spend 100% of their time diagnosing and treating patients. When you look at a clinical encounter and you track very carefully the amount of time that a physician is spending in a clinical encounter, there are many, many, you know, hundreds, hundreds of opportunities for technology to step in and enable that physician to focus their time exclusively on those two activities. Now, we happen to believe that it's going to be a very, very long time, very, very long time. And I can't say if it's going to be 10, 15, 20, 50, or 100 years before technology is able to, in a very narrow set of cases, mm -hmm. uh, to, to replace a physician. Our view is that a physician, their training, their history, their practice is just a phenomenal contributor to their ability to be effective in diagnosing and treating patients. We also know that it is part of the uh, of the work that physicians do that many physicians love the most. Um, and so our technology enables them to just focus their time on that as opposed to yeah. needing to focus their time 
on things like, you know, maybe interviewing the patient, uh, gathering information from the patient, giving the patient instructions around uh, what to do with the diagnosis and the treatment, all of the charting requirements that, uh, that a, a physician certainly needs to do that takes up an enormous amount of their time, the follow-up work that takes up so much time that most physicians just aren't able to even do it. We look at all of the steps that occur and we bring technology to bear to, to help save the physician time. Not only to save time, but if we go back to what your initial goal was, which is the relationship, it's to execute on maybe all of those things like the follow-up that maybe aren't taking place or are or, or problematic in a traditional setting. That's exactly right. And certainly for some people, this is, I wouldn't say it's controversial, um, but the perspective that a technology service is capable of building a relationship with an individual is a little bit, you know, call it futuristic for some people, even though there are many services that exist in people's lives today that essentially are a relationship dimension for them. Or put another way, you know, there are relationships that people are both building and sustaining with individuals in their lives these days who they never, ever, ever have a conversation with. No one could have imagined that 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. No. Um, but we, we are endeavoring to build that sort of connective tissue between a service called 98.6 and the individual, the patient, through technology. And we, we believe it absolutely can be done. Uh, and we're, we're you know, making progress at actually doing it. Well, I think the key word that you used was augment. And so it, it's, it's an enabler for the primary care physician to be able to reach more patients and deliver care in, in the, the manner in which they would like to, right? Given the scope of the problem, I mean, you, you articulated it very well, the, uh, the supply and demand issues that we have, finding efficiencies <laughs> would seem to be the only solution, right? Yeah. I, I also like to make it clear that all of those physicians who are practicing medicine in an ambulatory setting, they are really in all of this. I, I, I realize that people can sort of shine a light on them as being sort of a, a source of the issue. And we don't see it that way at all. Um, I think that they've largely, especially on the primary care front, that in some senses, they've been the heroes uh, carrying us through this uh, this system for the past 20, 30 years, continuing to go to work every day, even in you know a challenging set of circumstances, doing the very, very best that they can, you know, as the system has has made their jobs increasingly more challenging day in and day out. I agree with that 100%. I mean, heroic would not be an unjust word. I mean, one of my best friends is a primary care physician. I know very well about the day-to-day -day challenges of, of operating in, in the current state. You have a lot of great physicians and good people operating in a bad system. I, I think that's what it comes down to. You know, I would say the same thing about each of the other members of the ecosystem. You know, I would say the same thing, as controversial as it might be, about the the insurance companies the the brokers and the consultants 
the self-insured employers, the government, each of these different members of the ecosystem, each of them in some ways are as much victims of the system that we're in. We could sit here and say that they created the system, but the truth is that the, the system came to where it is today largely through many point-wise, relatively organic state changes that no single member of the ecosystem can take you know, single responsibility for. And so the system got to where it is, not by the fault of any one of the members of the ecosystem. And I believe that all of those members of the ecosystem are going to need to lean in together in order to take the system forward. You know, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, as we introduce technology into this system in a very meaningful way, that everyone in the ecosystem can be a winner. Like everyone in the ecosystem, everyone, literally the health systems, the payers, the brokers, the consultants, the self-insured employers, the, the government, every single one of them, the, the pharmacies, all of them will be in a position where they can do their jobs better. And, and by the way, when I talk about bringing, you know, technology into the system, I don't just mean 98.6. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's all sorts of technology innovation that will happen across the entire system that will help make the system more healthy and put the system on a different trajectory than it has been on for the past 20 years. I agree. I mean, there's lots, lots of innovations, I think, coming. Um, the unfortunate part is, is those innovations haven't yet transitioned into, you know, lower costs, you know, per member per month. And I, I think there largely remains a lot of misaligned incentives that, that exist that we need to deal with. But I'm an optimist and, uh, and it sounds like you are too. So I think we're, we're on the same page that you know, better results are, are certainly down the road. But let's go back to, I want to talk about the consumer experience for a second, uh, because I think that's one one of the problems in the current you know healthcare world is that there's just not a lot of focus on the consumer. So let's let's talk about the consumer experience with with ninety eight point six. So first, they can engage with you via text. If somebody did want to actually have a phone conversation or or do a video chat, are those options available as well? Yes, they are. In fact, in 50% of states, a video uh, is required to establish the patient-doctor relationship. Mm. Okay. Um, and in all of those states, we, we do conduct a video uh, in order to do so. But yes, video, voice, photos, audio, all of these capabilities are available to augment the text-based interaction. And whether the physician decides that those additional modalities are required in order for them to do a great job diagnosing and treating, or whether the patient requires that those modalities are required, uh, we are certainly able to move the conversation into those modalities. Let's say somebody is is using the the app and you know they're at their desk or they're in line shopping and, and they want to connect with somebody. What's the actual wait time to see a physician? So when when you start ninety eight point six, you are immediately engaged in your medical encounter. the The medical encounter begins with the ninety eight point six automated assistant. There could be a point in the future where the vast, vast majority of the entire encounter occurs with the 98.6 automated assistant. 
Um, right now, the way the experience runs is the first half or three quarters or whatever the percentage is of the experience is with the automated assistant. And then in all cases today, and this will change over time, one of our physicians will join the chat uh, and basically take over from the automated assistant. At that moment, when uh, one of our physicians joins, there can be a very, very short wait time uh, for that physician. In 95% of cases, that wait time is less than two minutes. But like to your point, the actual encounter starts right away because there's, there's an intake. Immediately. Pro- immediately. Right. That's okay. exactly correct. That's right. And, and that wait time will in time will, will totally go away because of the way the interaction model will continue to evolve. There are all sorts of things that we're doing in how we build out the experience because the experience is, you know, the number two, you know, most critical priority for the company. We want to be delighting every one of those patients in a time where historically they have not been delighted, you know, when they've engaged with, with the healthcare system, Mm -hmm. Uh, we want them to literally have a delightful experience and wait time is something that people don't like. So we certainly want them to feel like they aren't waiting at all and we'll continue to evolve the experience. So even that, that 60 second or 45 second wait that we talked about that's occurring right now starts to fade away. So just for the record, I I love that adjective that you just used delightful. So let's talk about that. So what has the, the consumer experience been so far? What type of feedback are you getting from patients and do you use a metric like net promoter score to kind of see where you're at? Yes, we do. We look at net promoter score about as closely as any company. Some people might even argue that we look at it too closely. Mm -hmm. When we first started to focus on NPS, which was literally, you know, one one or two weeks after we launched uh, the beta of the service back in February of 2017, we had to set a goal for NPS. And we looked at a bunch of comparable NPS scores out on the internet, uh, in the healthcare industry. And the, the NPS scores for people in healthcare ranged from negative numbers, and I won't mention any names, to, you know, there were a couple, you know, there was one uh, that was at one, there was maybe a couple that were in the low teens, and there was one up at 21 or 22. Mm-hmm. And so we decided at that point, that this is healthcare, you know, obviously it's not a time that people are, you know, really very happy about what's going on with them. And so, you know, maybe this is just where the scores are going to be. So we set the goal for ourselves of 30 and we kept NPS, the NPS goal of 30 for quite some time, even as we started to gather data and more data and N, sort of N, which is the number of data points that we gather kept, you know, kept growing, although it was very low for a period of time while we were still crawling, you know, and treating very, very few patients. Mm -hmm. We started to notice that our NPS goal was north of 50. Like it was in the 50s. uh, It was sometimes in the high 50s. And this is back in the early days, like almost a year ago. And we decided to move our goal up to 50 at that point. Um, Because again, we were a little bit concerned that maybe the numbers were high because it was still very early. People's expectations were low. N was still quite low. It was still just in the hundreds instead of in the thousands and tens of thousands. 
But interestingly enough, as N kept going up, our scores started, kept going up. Uh, we just recently moved the goal to 70. Our NPS score ranges in a given month, you know, from, you know, anywhere from 68 or 69 to very low 70s. So we're, we're up there with neighbors like, you know, Amazon and mm-hmm. Apple and Netflix that have, you know, some of the, the highest uh, net promoter scores. And we're, we're super proud of that. Now, that being said, in every survey that we do, there are always detractors, you know, um, and even when those detractors are a very low percent of the total patients, we study those detractors very closely. Like we look at those detractors as gold for the company. We study them closely. We learn as much as we can about them. We try to have a conversation with every single one of them and discover what it is about the service that we could possibly improve. Because in the world that we live in, we would love to see zero detractors, uh, even you know when we're doing 10,000 visits every day. That's hard work, but that's what we're dedicated to as a company. You briefly mentioned sort of the fee structure and how, you know, your goal is to get this as, as close to zero as possible. Can you just briefly explain to, to our audience what is the fee structure? Is it a PEPM per encounter fee? How does it work? Yeah, so we are turning as diametrically away from fee-for-service or fee-for-encounter as we possibly can. It, it mm-hmm. will resist it at all costs because we believe that it is the wrong model. We, we believe deeply, deeply in the capitated model. And our, our primary customer, um, so our, our primary channel right now is self-insured employers. We have two different pricing models with our self-insured employers. The first is an introductory model, and the second is a model that we're certainly willing to consider with everyone, but for most, it's easier to move to it after the introductory period. So the introductory model is uh, $1 per employee per month to offer unlimited primary care uh, with no utilization fees to all eligible members of the plan. Wow. Um, so that includes it includes all the employees. It includes all of their dependents, age uh, twelve months and older. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just launched a pediatrics last week. You know that's just a, a dollar PPM for that unlimited usage, and we don't bill anyone for the utilization. So it's not we don't bill insurance, we don't bill the member, we don't bill anyone. There's no utilization fees. There's no strings attached. There's no no nothing. It's the PPM for unlimited access. Now, the one caveat is that, as I said earlier, the IRS requires that we charge HSA patients, patients who are on an HSA plan, that we charge them fair market value for the service. And we've done a bunch of work to analyze fair market value uh, very, very critically uh, and have produced a fair market value of $5 uh, for each visit. So we are required by law uh, to charge that amount to any HSA customers. But for everyone else, every single usage is free. And so after that introductory period, which for for some employers could be uh, two years, for some very, very large employers, we're certainly willing to move to sort of this second business model, Mm -hmm. which is more of a shared savings 
model where we will sign up to help them track the dollars that they're saving across all of ambulatory care given adoption of 98.6 and that we will share in, in, in those savings. Now, we happen to believe that those savings that they're generating are only a small part of the value that we're bringing to those employers. You know, sure. we think, you know, much bigger elements of the value are related to the morale of their employees, the accessibility of healthcare to their employees, the level of engagement that their employees have with their own health and with the healthcare system in general, all of these things leading to over the long-term lower costs and healthier employees. We believe that those value dimensions are much more important in a lot of ways than the cost. But we also acknowledge that for very large employers, costs is something that they're very, very focused on. So we want them to know that we're certainly willing to share in that drive to, to build savings into their system. A number of the organizations who we've interviewed on this show have a, a shared you know, savings model. I don't really see anything wrong with that as long as incentives are aligned. Uh, and so that, you know, when the employer wins, you know, you guys win as well. And, you know, certainly there's so much waste in the system. You know, I'm, I, I believe there is, uh, you know, a lot of opportunity to drive waste out of the system. And to the point that you guys are able to influence that uh, and help an employer with that, you know, I think there's, there's a value to that service. What are you most excited about right now in the business? Are there any improvements or enhancements to the service that we should be looking out for in the future? Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited. If, if we'd had this uh, interview a week and a half ago, um, I would have told you that I'm really excited about the launch of pediatrics, but now that's launched. And so <laughs> that's, a, that's a rear view mirror accomplishment. Um, I'm excited about more of our uh, self-insured employers learning about the availability of pediatrics. So I think that's going to be incredibly well-received. We are now working on making the service available in uh, across uh, every hour of the day. So we're going to be launching 24 by 7 in the next four months or so. Uh, and that's going to be a, a major, major addition for so many of our customers. Right now, our hours are a little bit more, uh, are, are not quite 24 by seven, they're close. Mm -hmm. um, but I think 24 by seven is gonna make an, an enormous difference. Uh, so looking forward to that. And, and then I'm you know, really excited about our conversations with major, very, very large employers. When we launched the service, Obviously, we had to crawl, walk, run, and we are ready now to run um, as fast as we, we need to. And so, you know, having the opportunity to sit down with employers, with employee counts, you know, measured in the hundreds of thousands is incredibly exciting for us because of the, the scale that we've been building into the service. So we've really yes. built the underlying business and our technology uh, and our care platform to enable us to support uh, those sorts of employers. And so I'm very excited uh, to be in conversation with those sorts of employers to, you know, to be looking at bringing their employee bases on in uh, late 2019 and early 2020. Robbie, if there was uh, one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? You should have asked me, if I've ever used the service or if any of my uh, family members have used, used the service and how happy we were with it. How happy were you with it? <laughs> well, you know, 
Um, <laughs> thankfully, uh, my family does not get sick very often, but I think each member of my family in the past year has had the opportunity to use the service. Uh, and in each case, they've both been taken care of. Certainly, I would say they've been delighted by the service, but also in each case, they've certainly brought me personally some great feedback that has enabled me to help the team relentlessly improve the service, which is what you know I, I look for uh, personally in every single one of the encounters. Like I want every patient, personally, I want every patient to be delighted, but them also to feel like there's one or two things that we could improve because that is the sort of feedback that ends up, I mean, that's fuel for us. That's what drives oh. us uh, to, to relentlessly improve. And, um, you know, I was super thrilled to have that come from, from my family members and, and have that get driven into the business. To be honest, that's why I have the utmost respect for people like you, organizations like, like yours, who are trying to, you know, disrupt the status quo, because there is this relentless drive to improve and to get better, which is entirely missing with the traditional insurance companies. They do very well with status quo. And, you know, they'll come, come out and tell you all day long about all these things they're doing to try and improve, but I don't really believe it. Uh, so well, we've we've been, uh, you know, Michael. Maybe we, we could end end on on this observation. We've been absolutely amazed. We've had the opportunity to talk to several of those insurers. It's usually when they reach out to us, and we've gotten to know some very very well who are embracing change and who who want to drive innovation and who who know. You might not know exactly what they need to do, but are incredibly excited to, you know, lock arms with us um, and other innovators in the market uh, to 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 try to drive change. So I'm 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 not I, I don't doubt your comment um, can be applied to many of them, but thankfully I don't think it can be applied to all of them. And I think that that's that's a great indicator of of what's to come. Absolutely. Uh, so it's uh, in some sense that's. That's that's good news. Well, you guys are the speedboats. They're the aircraft carriers. Thank so. you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so sometimes, you know, they see the speedboats and, and I think they can they can see, hey, we should probably be, you know, moving a little faster and, and maybe they can, you know, partner with you guys to, to do so. So with that, great. this has been great, Robbie. Really, really appreciate it. Your time and your insight and the conversation. Thank you. Uh, on behalf of our listeners, really appreciate you joining this. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to 98.6 website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content we're bringing to you on the show. Let us know what you think with a review. It's super easy. It takes five seconds. Just open up the podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page, scroll down to the bottom, and let us know what you think. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.